Welcome to the Pineapple Couch with B-Rob. I am B-Rob. This is episode 34 of the Pineapple Couch, and today is August 3rd. We're doing this on a Monday. Um, Sports are fucking back, people. We freaking made it. Uh, I got a great episode for you today, but before I get into that, just wanted to say a special congratulations to one of my best friends, Jacob Morris, and his lovely fiance, Shannon, um, the Morrises. Uh, so they just got engaged. Big shout out to them. Very happy for them. Uh, all right. Shout out to you, Jacob. Um, great podcast, though, today. We got my buddy Josh Bilker coming on. We're going to talk some NBA, talk about the bubble, talk about how much we're liking it. And then we're going to have Big Dog and my dad on, and we're going to be talking a little MLB, a little NBA. And then we're going to get into the history of naval power in the world. So we're going to go kind of like through some of the best navies the world has ever seen. This is kind of like the battle episode we did a while back. A while back. So I highly recommend it. Um, stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening. You can um, subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. And if you leave a five-star review, we'll uh, answer your question on the pod. We actually um, are getting close to having another mailbag question, uh, mailbag pod soon. So if you have any questions about anything you want to hear us talk on the pod topics, send them to us on Instagram at the pineapple couch or at Brian Robbins. You can do it on Twitter as well. And you could also um, email me at brianrobbins54 at gmail.com. Um, all right, let's get into it. Josh Bilker. All right, welcome back to the Pineapple Couch, a real treat for you folks today. We got my longtime friend and once upon a time radio partner, Josh Bilker, who's also an NBA expert. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing great. Um, it's been a wonderful weekend, and it's just, you know, going to be uphill from here because basketball's back. I'm, I'm really excited Sports about are it. back. Sports. Sports are back it's, in it's, general. Yeah. It's fantastic. I've been watching every single basketball game and probably four or five baseball games a day i hope baseball doesn't get canceled we'll talk about that later in the pod <laughs> but um that's that's an entirely different that's, that's uh, conversation about. and it's 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 crazy how blessed i feel with like the nba and how how well they're handling everything and how well it's yeah out. yeah because there were so mm-hmm. many that bad re- reports about going into oh. it too about like how the bubble wasn't going to be a bubble there were going to be a bunch of holes and there's it, it but it seems to be working out pretty well for, for the yeah time i being. I wasn't um, very optimistic in like the week or two leading up to it, but I got to say, <laughs> and again, we'll get to this later, just the, the bubble has been great. So let's yeah. start talking about some games that have gone on in the bubble. Um, let's talk about the game that happened last night. We had quite the game, Josh. We had the Bucks rockets So the Bucks pretty much, I felt like were, the, I feel like the Bucks are the better team, obviously, here. But Absolutely. The Rockets, oh. with their weird style, really fucked with the Bucks, honestly. Westbrook had a hell of a game. Um, the Rockets win by four. What were your big takeaways from that game, Josh? Okay, I have a, I have a confession to make. Um, All right. I might be a Rockets fan. I might be a closeted wow. Rockets fan. Wow, this uh, is, folks, this is truly disturbing. I know. It's, it's just I really like watching them play is the thing. They just play the, the style of basketball they play is just so fucking weird. It's so good, though. Is the thing. I it's it's really exciting. Probably not to play with, I imagine, because you just have Definitely. people standing around the wings just waiting for the ball to come their way. But like it's really fucking weird and it's the most unique basketball I think you can watch right now. Where it just mm-hmm. do, it doesn't make any sense, but yet it does, because they're they're doing the same thing on every possession possible. And they're still beating the best defense in the league, clearly. Yeah. It and, was uh the thing 
to quickly jump in, the thing that stood out to me the most from that game was there was just multiple multi- multiple possessions where you had James Harden guarding Brooke Lopez, and mm-hmm. Brooke Lopez is just standing there out on the three-point line. Mm-hmm. And so when the Rockets go small like that, you need to throw the ball into the post. Like, I know Giannis was attacking, but if you're going to let your center chill on the three-point line, I know Brooke Lopez is a decent three-point shooter. That's exactly what the Rockets want. They're like, oh, thank you. Great. And to, to Brooke Lopez's credit, he still had a fucking hell of a game, too, on top mm-hmm. of that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you should have – he only shot 9 for 18. I, I pulled up the, the box score. Oh, so, look at you. Yeah, so I'm coming prepared and on fire. But, yeah, he shot 9 for 18, which, considering his matchup, he had nobody over 6'7 guarding him the entire game. Uh, he was bigger than everyone. and could He looked easily, like Wilt. Yeah, exactly. Was, you're, you're, you're totally right. Yet he still only had 12 rebounds. I feel like that easily could have been, like, 30, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah, and part of that is Giannis did get 18 boards, but I think it's a lot of it, to your point, though, is what we're talking about. Brooke Lopez is a lot of offensive possessions just mm-hmm. clearing out to the three-point line so guys like Giannis and Chris Middleton can drive. And Chris Middleton and Giannis had a hell of a game. They did. But that game, I've talked about it on this podcast a ton. I've talked about it with you in the past. Um the one worry I have about the Bucks is when you get into that half-court offense and you need buckets at the end of the game. Yeah. I love Giannis. He's so good, but they seem to struggle last night. He's not reliable is the problem still from, from deep or anything like that. And that's that's going to be the problem with these. Um, it was the same problem with like the Dwight Howard Magic teams where the best player on the team was their center, their big man, who had no outside shot really. And can't I, eventually the defense gets tighter and the floor gets smaller and you can't just drive in willy nilly all game like Giannis was able to, and I think that's when your outside shot comes into play and your your mid range or anything anything of like an actual shot and the problem is then you just have to give it to Middleton and Middleton's a hell of a player don't get me wrong but he's just not the guy you want to have like mentally take that last shot when you have Giannis this alpha dog on your team. And, and that's the problem is that's going to be the cap. I mean, it's been said over and over again, but until Giannis gets like a, like a good enough, even like a LeBron James, like decent enough Miami consistent, three point, consistent is, the, is the big thing. Um, where, mm-hmm. I mean, because obviously LeBron wasn't a great shooter starting in the league either. And, well, now he's actually pretty decent, but um, I, I guess that's up for debate. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but but Giannis has made yeah. progress in his he three. Definitely has. And definitely credit has. to him. I just think that um, it's just so tough for him, and it's not. It's like he had thirty eight points last night. He had a great yeah. game, but like you said, when the game gets slows down and it gets tighter, he's basically having to go try and dunk it over four guys every possession. You, you just can't. They, they need another playmaker. Chris Middleton is a good. Is a, a he's a solid player. He's a solid. 20 plus per game he's a great shooter but I do think they need a secondary playmaker on that team because like here I always compare things to the Warriors but like think about this so on the Warriors you had Steph who was obviously your number one playmaker right of course and then you have Clay Thompson who's the second best player but I'd argue that Draymond Green their third best player in that initial one he was the secondary playmaker so you need those two guys who can um I mean yeah, kind of switch off possessions down the end of the game and get big shots. And, like, if you think about, like, LeBron and Kyrie when they were in um, mm-hmm. Cleveland, and I'm comparing the Bucks to all these great teams because the Bucks are a historic regular season Absolutely. team. And if they want to make that leap, I do think they are 
man, if they had Bradley Beal, holy shit. I agree. And I, I think you'd have to trade Middleton, right, to make the salary work, right? On that? Yeah, they, I mean. Because they're pretty capped could, out, I want to say. You could package Bledsoe and Lopez. Oh, I would, I would love that, that deal. For, for but you're not gonna, no one's gonna give up Bradley Beal for no, those two. Absolutely um, not. Uh, you know who'd be good is I think an upcoming free agent. I think is Goran Dragic. Yeah, be a, a great yeah. fit for the Bucks. I think, and he yeah. might not be too expensive. Yeah, because I just think part of the thing too. I know obviously Bledsoe didn't play last night. Um, he should be he coming back the this week. He does. But what I'm saying is, I what I was gonna say is I don't know if that's much of a negative for him not playing, but. Uh, they got absolute nothing from DiVincenzo, I gotta say. He was terrible. Uh, he shot yeah. four for ten, three from or one from six from deep. Z- 0 for two from the free throw line, by the way. He missed a pair of them uh, yeah, later in the game. That was just disgusting. And that's just kind of like the fact that we're like, we need DiVincenzo to have this output. <laughs> that's kind of scary. I like Dante DiVincenzo. He's had I some great too. games this year, and he's weirdly like what the third best playmaker on the team probably behind yeah. uh Giannis and Middleton yeah um but it's just the consistency so um I still like okay we just talked shit on the Bucks for like five minutes but I still yeah. think that they should be the favorite in the east I don't think they should be as overwhelming of a favorite over a team like the Raptors or even maybe the Celtics um because of what we Celtics. just talked about. I got to say, they speaking did. of um, the Celtics-Bucks game, I'll just real quick, I think if they get anything better out of Jason Tatum that game, I think the Celtics come away with the win. He was oh, yeah. Well, absolutely he was, terrible. Yeah, and then he got his hair cut, and then yesterday when they played the Blazers, <laughs> great great transition there, Josh. Yeah. We'll, go into the Buc- uh, we'll go into the Celtics-Blazers game that was yesterday. Um, Jason Tatum gets uh, the haircut and obviously has a hell of a game yeah. against the um, Blazers. He had 34-8. and eight, And then the, the Blazers put on such an epic comeback. I, Lillard gets 30-16. and 16. They're pl- McCollum's playing well. And then they just shit it down the drain with just such stupid plays at the end of the game. I, I don't understand. That inbound pass to me still makes no fucking sense to me. I, it's I, just all-time stupidity. It's... I, I think what he was trying to do, right, is he was trying to do like a like a go route, right, with Lillard, where he was trying to do a comeback and then come back yeah. around and get him on like the uh, in in uh, in motion. But like it it just it, it wasn't it's like, timed well at all. It's like fucking simplify it. You have Damian Lillard, just give him the ball. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Um, I, I do, but yeah, so uh, let's talk about um, the Blazers a little bit here because um, this is kind of like. The Kings have been looking like shit, except Deer and Fox in their first game played absolutely. quite well. They were in it, mm-hmm. but they choked that game down the stretch. And then they just got absolutely throttled yesterday by the Magic. And I, I don't take any um, happiness in saying this. The Kings kind of look like they're done, to be honest. I, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's time to start tanking, get a higher lottery odd, and just keep that the last position. Because they're still are they still in front of the Suns? I need a I didn't look up the standings. Yes, they but. are still they are still in front of. I have it right here. Let me check it. Okay, I'm pretty sure they're ahead of the Suns. They are. Um, yeah, the Kings are right now. Well, they're only a half game in front of the Suns now, and so you got the Grizzlies are um, two games. They're in the eight seed, right? And mm-hmm. the Spurs are two games back. And the Blazers are two and a half, and the Pelicans and Kings are three and a half. Uh, we just talked about how the Kings are done. 
I'm close to saying the same with the New Orleans Pelicans. I think they, so, too. They look like shit. And despite looking like the first game they played it, there was Brandon Ingram played well. There was kind of some JJ Redick played well. Absolutely. The refusal to play Zion just sucks. Yeah. Just sucks. I want to see Zion play. And it's just like, what's the, why are, I just don't get like, okay, you're like, we're going to put him on a, what? Like they're on like a 15 minute limit minutes restriction or something like that. Yes. Okay. Well, stop doing it at the beginning of like the second and third quarter. Like I give agree. us him down the stretch, right? Like what's yeah. the fucking point? I think he would have made the difference in the jazz game for sure. I think for he sure. just limited his minutes till the end. And then just, because the problem is, is he's not just like a rotational player. He literally is your, your decider, your game decider here. And so I think whatever, you get whatever you get out of your normal starters with Brandon Ingram, Lonzo, et cetera, et cetera. And then if it does come close, then you start playing Zion heavy minutes. I, I think that's the smarter move. Because um, they're just punting on the playoffs. They're just punting. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like Zion, I mean, this is obvious, but it's not like Zion's one of these like young rookies you're like, we just really want him to get his reps in, Mm-mm. and like that's maybe why we want to put him in. It's like, no. Zion would be the best player in the game, probably. Oh, absolutely. And, so, and he was the reason that the Pelicans were favored so well to maybe take that eight spot from the Grizzlies, and that's obviously fell apart. Um, it looks like it's going to be the Grizzlies, Spurs, or Blazers again. There's still there's still time left for the um, Pelicans and Kings, but it's not looking too good. I mean, fuck, the Suns are now four games back. Who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But... What do we make of the the Spurs? Because I think both of us are probably leaning that it will be between the Grizzlies and Blazers, correct? I definitely am, just as far as damage goes. But, I mean, the Spurs do this every fucking year for the last, like, 10 years where they just hang around. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's just so annoying because they're, they're, they don't have a good roster. I'd say out of those three teams, they have their worst roster, worst amount of talent between the Grizzlies and the Blazers and them. Yes, um, definitely. Yet they're still going to put up a fight, and they're still mm-hmm. going to be right they have, there. They have some crafty young players, they too, definitely who are do. very good defensively. Derek White, DeJounte Murray. I really um, like Murray. I mean, freaking Jakob Pertle has been playing really well off the bench for them. Um, but I do think it's going to come down between the Grizzlies and the Blazers because... The simple thing with the Blazers is like Damian Lillard is the best player out of these remaining teams by Easy. far. Easy. John Morant is probably two, and Zion is in there, Deer and Fox, but it's Absolutely. it's Damian Lillard. And if if the Blazers can get in to that eight nine um, playoff. That matchup for those two games between John Morant and Damian Lillard is going to be freaking electric. Who would you favor? Putting you on the spot. You gotta go, Dame. I I, I gotta go, Blazers. Just I just I talked to you uh, outside the pod um, like a couple days ago. I really like the Blazers roster. I know they're not like performing very well, but I just think the amount of talent and guys that can get you shots on a nightly basis. Nurkic looks good. Nurkic looks looks really good. I think Nurkic might be a top five center right now is the thing. That's a hot He just looks very nimble. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about it. There's not that many good centers. No, there's not. But you got like what? You got Embiid, Jokic, Adebayo. Yeah, I would definitely put all those guys. And then I guess you'd probably put Gobert maybe. I don't don't really – I'm not a big Gobert guy. Patient zero. You mean? (laughs) Patient zero, Rudy Gobert. Um, 
the defensive uh, player of the year who you have to sub yeah. out at the end of playoff games because it's he can't stay on the floor for defensive reasons. Yeah. Embarrassing. Um, um, I, I was going to say... And, yeah, sorry. go for it. Oh, I... Um, yeah, I just I really like Nurkic is is what I was getting at. And how about mm-hmm. poor Whiteside? I gotta say he was having quietly like a pretty good season, and now mm-hmm. he's just getting like eight minutes a game, if that. Now that Nurkic and Zach Collins are back, and it's, and it's like just, look how much better the Blazers are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I I feel for him though because they were um I watched like the last Blazers scrimmage game. And the announcers, who are very good also, I got to say, the Portland like local announcers are probably okay. some of my favorites in the league. Joe Rinaldi, uh, he'll appreciate that. He'll appreciate mm-hmm. that. I got a friend from Oregon. Um, of course. So, and, but I was yeah, going to, sorry, going. last thing. Uh, no, and no, no. I, they were talking about how Whiteside was on a historic pace of leading the league or uh, breaking the franchise record for blocks and rebounds. And like it was, it was very doable. He needed like 20 blocks or some 25 blocks and like uh, – he needed to average like twelve rebounds a game. That's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, so. him and uh, Andre Drummond and Hassan Whiteside are the kings of. Like, <laughs> if you saw their stat sheet, you'd be like, "Man, yeah. this guy's good." Yeah. And then it's like, no, no, no he's not. He's not. He's not good. It's like the um, same thing with like Gobert. You know, you think like a, a two-time Defensive Player of the Year might be a three-time Defensive Player of the Year would be the most ridiculous player to have, like on the lead one of the top 10 most valuable I mean, players not, it's not, not even, even close 25 maybe no yeah um, you you look at that uh, a game they play and you just see gobert's not really making that much of a difference he's getting dunks and like tippins basically on the offensive end and a rim protector yeah and so let's i'm gonna bring up the grizzlies blazers again b2 because i want to talk about yeah. the grizzlies they've gotten off to a bad start look they've lost their first two games but mm. I think they have a very, very talented roster. John Morant is obviously incredible, but Jaron Jackson looks good. Dylan Brooks is a stud. Um, Jonas Valanciunas, um, I feel like I haven't seen him as much. Oh, I was going to – Brandon Clark's looking really good. I mean, That's, he might yeah. come in second of Rookie of the Year. I think weirdly, so, yeah. Because Zion didn't play that much. No. Um, especially if he's not going to play these last uh, – <laughs> he's going to play 11 minutes of the game and like five minutes in the first and second quarter. Fucking bullshit. Yeah. Uh, did you have anything else on – um? The, the this Grizzlies. weekend's games before we just kind of get into some like more overall topics. Um, no, I you know I just think the Clippers. I I guess I was is the last thing I was gonna say. I gotta mention the Clippers at least once based on how they played. Yeah. They had a, so let's let's yeah. save that. Sure. For, yeah. Um, because we're gonna actually no fuck it. Let's talk about it right now. Sure. Clippers Lakers. So that game happened this weekend, and I know how you feel just based on me knowing you <laughs> and you probably know what I think based on you knowing me, but um, I thought it was crazy how the Lakers won that game, but I thought that game proved that the Clippers were the better team. I thank you. Yeah. No I, Lou will no Montrez Harrell limited Anthony Patrick Davis Beverly. Like nothing. Also, I oh no, Davis was bad in the Raptor game. Excuse me. Yeah. So. He, he had like 20 free throws in the Lakers game. It was, he just kept getting to the line and that was, Probably what killed the Clippers the most, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you a, imagine bringing back Harrell will definitely help. And then yep. Lou Will, those are your third and fourth leading scorers. Yeah. And I am a loud Paul George critic, I know, but he looks, he's looks he been looking damn, damn good I think these he's first been, couple games. He's been playing better than Kawhi, honestly, these first if, two games. And if you're, if you're getting that level out of Paul George, the Clippers, I, was, I think I was talking to my dad about this. Um, if you're getting that level out of Paul George – 
and Montrezl and Lou Will are going to come back, and you know what you're going to get out of Kawhi. Like, I think the Clippers could, like, not roll, but, like, I don't know. I think they could take out the Lakers in six games. And I think that um, the East is so wide open of who will come that I think whoever makes it out of the West, the Lakers or the Clippers, I really favor them versus anyone out of the East. I agree. And it's and it's almost like a shame that they can't play each other for the finals or something. Because mm-hmm. I really do think those are the, the best two teams. They have yeah, the least absolutely. questions. And they have the best... I mean, I'd say the Clippers have the best uh, role players and bench. The Lakers might need some work on that. But. Yeah, the, the Lakers' depth is a really a big reason why I favor the Clippers in mm-hmm. that matchup. Um, because you obviously have the star power with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. That's what, like, two of the top six, seven players in the NBA. I don't know where I have Davis. I kind of fluctuate on that. Um, but, yeah, the, the Lakers, it's, it's clear, though, that it suck, it's not a good sign that losing Avery Bradley – is like, oh, shit. I mean, and Caruso, love the guy. He's playing well. I mean, the Rondo injury was kind of a blessing in disguise because Caruso's <laughs> been playing way better than Rondo. I agree. Um, but there is just a... When you see the Lakers out there running out, J.R. Smith, Dion Waiters, it's just tough. And so it's like, yeah. I'll ask you this question. Who's the third best player on the Lakers? Is it Kuzma? Is it Danny Green? It's definitely not Danny Green. Um I think I gotta give it to Kuzma. Unfortunately, um, that's tough. I know, I know, and I, I I hate Kuzma. I think he's my least favorite Laker, arguably. So obviously, Paul George and Kawhi are better than Kuzma. So the Clippers three. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like what you got. Like Harrell could say is it. I think he's better than Kuzma. I think Lou Will's mm-hmm. better than Kuzma. Yeah. I think Patrick Beverly's better than Kuzma. I think so too. I, I'm a big Patrick Beverly guy, so I'm probably Patrick I'm very biased. I think Patrick he's the most Bo- important Clipper. I, I he, it's my take. Oh, that's that's. I think Paul George. I think Kawhi's the best Clipper, and um, Pat Beverly. Like, I, I he's important. I agree, mm-hmm. but it's like it's not a question mark what you're gonna get out of Patrick Beverly. You're he's right. gonna give it to you, and so like I think Paul George might be like the X factor of like in terms of how his performance is in the playoffs. Absolutely, but the Clippers are really in a nice spot, and so another thing I wanted to bring up to you. I mean, holy fuck, dude. The the quality of basketball we're getting oh, yeah. in this bubble, this is amazing. I don't need fans ever again. No, I not don't at give all. a fuck. I love the camera angles they get from the side of the court. I'm very, very intrigued. Are you enjoying it too? I yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm not as big as those side cameras just because I can't see like the flow of like whatever the play is trying to develop into. So I feel like, yeah, I, I like it, it when they mix it in a little. Yeah, you know? yeah, I do too for, for maybe like a possession or two. Um, because I just feel like you lose a lot of off ball stuff going on. Um, that's true. On the side camera. But it is like really neat to see because it's still not a perspective that's common to, to, uh, unless you sit courtside every night or something. But, uh, I, yeah, no, I think the, uh, the virtual fans, like the, I mean the sound more so that they put into the arena that like convinced me, honestly, that I did. I like, if you showed this to somebody like a year ago and just was like, yep, that's NBA basketball. Nothing weird about that. Like, and it's, yeah, that's a great point. And Mm -hmm. because this is something I said like months ago before, like when they were thinking about the bubble, I was like. And this is what we've seen in the first couple of games. Like, I give way more of a shit about how Lou Will or LeBron or Giannis reacts to their teammate hitting a big shot than some Joe Schmo in the crowd. You know? Totally agree. You pump in the crowd noise. That's all I need. Mm -hmm. And then 
and the crowd noise I don't think is like annoying on the players or anything. I think it's fine. And the home home advantage is that your person controls the the sound system or whatever. So that's yeah. how they kind of like the home team gets to do that. But yeah. yeah, I think that the just the quality of basketball we've got right out of the gate. I mean, how fucking great it is to have basketball back. Oh, totally. And just how well it's being run. It seems like just I mean, how worried I am about baseball just sucks because we're seeing the NBA do, which I, I was really skeptical about how the NBA was going to do this, and I think they've done a phenomenal job. And my question to you is, or I guess this isn't even a question. This is just a statement. Um, the the level of play we're going to see in the playoffs like this, I can't wait. Oh, like These sure. are basically preseason games, bro. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, like, it's fucking awesome. Like, what, what have been some things that stood out to you about this? Yeah, I think, again, this just makes me realize that I'm not going to miss a single Blazers game, for instance, because uh, they just have been playing nonstop because they they still have to play in, is the thing. So they Mm -hmm. have to be on top of their game A-plus every fucking night. And that's something I don't think you see. The Lakers, to me, seem much more pedestrian as well. I haven't liked their performance yet at all. And they're still trying to get back in the flow, maybe, I guess you could say. But uh, they're definitely treating it like a LeBron regular season type thing of like just he's not really doing the most. He's getting yeah, the, the minimal done, which is totally they fine. Don't. Yeah, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I think they definitely have another gear to go up to. But I think like just to um, like juxtapose it against like how hard the Blazers have been playing, for instance, I think it's it's really it's really interesting because I obviously the. A bunch of teams are still playing hard. The Rockets are still playing for seeding, for instance, too. So I'm mm-hmm. liking what their energy output is. But uh, same I, with the Heat. Same with the Heat. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And um, the the Raptors game too that just ended as well. I'm sure was great. I yeah, that was a phenomenal game. The the I let me check the. I'm pretty I sure the, I knew what happened, but I was I was too busy in this conversation. Raptors won. I want to say. Yeah, the right? Raptors just beat the Heat. 107-103 behind a career high, 36 points from Fred Van Fleet. Uh, speak, speaking of the Raptors, I mentioned this a little earlier. I really, really, really like the Raptors' chances in the East. I do really too. like them. You know but, whose chances I don't like? The Sixers at all. <laughs> Just no, sir. I'm so – I mean, Joel had what, 40 – okay, we got to bring up how T.J. Yeah, Warren dropped sure. fucking 53 points. Yeah, I, I, That was yeah, insane. Insane. Absolutely. Dude I, was traded for cash considerations. I know. I don't understand why the Suns would get rid of him, like, at all. The, the Suns are so stupid. They're, they just make the dumbest roster decisions ever, and they just all, luck into really good talent, too, on top they of took that. DeAndre Ayton over Luka Doncic. Dumb. And they had the—I mean, that's a whole different discussion, But and then, and then on top of that, they had the Euro the League took coach. Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic and Jason— uh, Jaron Jackson, excuse me. Yeah. yeah, it's just baffling. Um, so, yeah, I just really like the Raptors' chances to mix it up in the East. I think that that Raptors Bucks Eastern Conference Finals, if we can get that, is going to be a a war. I will say, I think the best chance uh, to, and there there might be the round two matchup. I think they're going to have some problems against the Celtics. I think the Celtics still have a really high ceiling. I think just with yeah, Jason. I, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are legitimately superstars um, when they on a night to night, potentially on a night to night basis, 
and I think that they can do some real damage to this Raptors team. I still think I still I, I agree. would pick the Raptors, but for the record. Mm-hmm. But well, the I, thing with Jason Tatum is he could be the best player in the game any given night, you know? Like mm-hmm. like exactly what you're saying with him and Brown, that just that pair, it, it puts you in like every game, you know? I mean, I still think like just reading off the top five for the Celtics is still insane. I'm I got some to, bad news for you after you read the top five, but go. Oh, fuck. Did something happen to Kemba? No. Okay. Just go. Okay, so it's Kemba, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, I mean, this isn't in any order, first of yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Um, Marcus Smart, on top of that, they got no center, unfortunately. That's that's probably their worst part. So you and didn't mention... Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward. He's been playing well. He's, I think yep. he is an absolutely essential piece to the Celtics if they want to win a title. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And that's the thing, is I think he Can is... I give you some bad news? Yes. Gordon Hayward's wife is expecting a baby in the next two weeks, and he will be gone from the bubble after that. Damn. All right. I'm just breaking it. Yeah. I'm just breaking Josh's heart here on the pineapple. I know. Well, that's good, though. At least I didn't make any, like, preemptive bets on the Celtics. (laughs) Um, Because now I definitely like the Raptors' chances for sure now. Because I was, was, was like, 50-50 on them before I heard that. Yeah. I think... uh, because the thing was that with the Celtics is um, I was just about to say how big of an X factor Gordon Hayward is because you just don't know he could give you like a superstar level performance is the thing he on could a put night. Up 35. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he could be the thing with Gordon Hayward is and I know he's had his like obviously some like struggles but he still in the Eastern Conference like on any given night could be the best player in a game. Absolutely. Like in a Celtics Raptors series Gordon Hayward could go for 35 and they have uh, Tatum could do that. Brown's shown that. Kemba, uh, yeah. I'm a little worried about just injury-wise, but it, it's all on Tatum. Absolutely. It's going to be all on Tatum. That was what I was going to say is uh, I think any one of those four guys can give you 30 a night. And I, I just – the Raptors, I think, only have about – I mean, they can't – they have a lot of really good role players because Kyle Lowry's also been playing really fucking well too. I and they have say. the best coach. And they have the best coach in the league. Um Absolutely, and Siakam did how did how well did Siakam play uh, against the Heat? Today? So Siakam, I didn't let me let me double check that. I know the Fred Van Fleet was causing all the damage. Mm-hmm. He he was uh let me I got the box score right here. Cool cool cool. Um, Pascal Siakam, uh, spicy P. Where's the box score? There we go. Sorry, folks. No, no, uh, Pascal Siakam, that. we got twenty-two and seven. Oh, he played well. Oh, that's that's very yeah. That he was, was what four I was for say. seven from three. Oh, pretty good. Yeah, he had a great game. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, that, um, what I was gonna say was that Siakam didn't have wasn't didn't play super well against the Lakers, for instance. Um, so that mm-hmm. was one thing I was gonna watch and see is, I mean, the fact that they still handedly beat the Lakers without like a well a good. Siakam performance. It was really just a newbie mm-hmm. and Lowry almost entirely. Lowry's so freaking good, dude. Insane. Holy fuck. He's so fucking good. Um, <laughs> and I agree. Obviously, Pascal Siakam, I'm saying I like the Raptors' chances. He needs to play at an elite level for the Raptors to get to the Absolutely. finals because he's another guy. We're talking about Tatum. If Pascal Siakam, he, any given night, could be the best player on the floor. And so that's what you got to look Easily. at. Uh, Josh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Before we wrap it up, um, sure. I want to get some predictions out of you. 
Um, let's just uh, give. So you you like the Blazers for that eighth seed in the in the West? Is that I th- right? I think I got to. Um, I just okay. I think they're gonna lose too many stupid games though. Realistically, where I still kind of see the Grizzlies kind of pulling that one out, unfortunately. Um, but I think if 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 it's the Spurs Grizzlies, I think the Spurs are gonna take it. And oh, you know what? Because the plane's gonna be guaranteed. Sorry, I'm I'm just thinking about this. In the no, no, too. this is what the pineapple couch is all about. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, because uh, I think if they do get into, I don't like the Grizzlies' chances in any playing tournament. Is the thing I just realized. They just have to get one win if they're still the oh, eight seed. But I, I see I what you mean. About that. I f- yeah. Okay. It, so they have to. Win. It's a lot of yeah. pressure on a rookie. It is. And a very young team, a and good team. Absolutely. Young. Yeah. I. Forgot to mention, uh, I love Jaron Jackson, first of all. I think he's, he's probably, beast. he's like one of my favorite players, like under 25, probably. Besides like the, the well-known, like the, you know, your Zions and Lucas, Luka, yeah, Trey yeah. Youngs, et cetera, et cetera. I think he's like my slightly under the radar, like favorite rookie, yeah, even though he's not horse. really. He's my dark horse. Like, I think he's yeah. really fucking good. I, I, he has a... Um, Okay, this is a big compliment, but just he has a Tim Duncan vibe about him. I like that. Yeah, just with with better range. It's, yeah, he yeah. just has this calmness and this like consistency I see in him, and just like he's such a professional. Um, so better his, than his Tim dad Duncan, played. In, I guess. Well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. Okay, let me just say something <laughs> people off before we end this. Kobe Bryant is so much better than Tim Duncan. Shut the fuck up Absolutely. out there if you're tweeting all this shit about how, oh my God, real ones know that Tim Duncan was the best. Tim Duncan, no. Hall of Famer, probably the best power forward ever. Easily. Not better than Kobe Bryant. All right, uh, Josh, who you got winning it all? I got to say the Clippers. Um, Clippers versus who? Fuck. Uh, I think I have I've better faith in the Bucks than the Raptors, personally. I think the Bucks okay. are going to win I- out. With Bledsoe, I lean that way as well. Bledsoe and uh, Connington uh, coming back, I think, could tip the scales in a Raptors series. But yeah, that'll that'll be definitely interesting. And what? Yeah. So the playoffs are gonna start August fourteenth, I believe. And so sixteenth. Um, yeah. Okay. So well, we got more time. We'll get you back. Yeah. Uh, we'll Absolutely. get you back on the pod throughout the playoffs, Josh. It's been a Anytime. pleasure. No, thank you for having me on the pineapple couch. This has been of course really fun. The treat is all mine, Josh. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to continue a little NBA conversation mixed in with MLB and then a history segment later on in the pod. You're not going to want to miss it. This has been the Pineapple Couch with B-Rob. We'll be right back. Thank you, Josh Bilker. You got it. All right, we're back on the Pineapple Couch. I'm joined by Andrew Radcliffe, Big Dog. Big Dog, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, B-Rob. It is good to have you here. Um, Always a treat. Always a treat. Baseball is back. You are right. uh, We're going to do a quick little baseball check-in. I believe next week we'll probably do a little longer one talking about each of the divisions. Once things start shaping up a little more, we'll have Johnny probably on that too, maybe Dustin. But I wanted to just get – we're going to do like a weekly check-in with baseball every week, and you're a resident baseball insider. Um, I wanted to bring up something. I think we probably mentioned on the last pod, and then I know you have a couple things. I just want to complain about how fucking stupid the putting a runner on second 
with no outs to start extra innings is because I would also like to say I've watched enough games where that happens. That does not shorten the game. Have you seen it go to like the 11th, 12th? Inning? Yeah. It just it, makes it go quicker to the 11th or 12th. But And it's just so frustrating because I think me and my dad were talking about this yesterday. It's like, why the fuck don't you just like, if you're going to do something this stupid, why, why aren't you putting him on first? Like what, why are we putting I mean, him? It does like, make why you are not we, put the remote down? Cause you think something's going to yeah, happen. But it's like, but why are we inviting the other team to um, intentionally walk this batter? batter you, you know what I mean? Just mark it as an error and it's just a random team error, but it's like nothing happened. He just ended up a second. So base. with um, ghost runner on second, when you're a closer or like a relief man and that guy scores from second, is that an earned run? I, it's got to be no, they, right? I don't think it's an earned run. There's no way. That'd be it, so it, fucked it's up. It's not because it's an error. Yeah. So an error wouldn't be an error? Yeah, it's, they just literally mark it as a team error. It's no personal error to like affect stats, but team errors hurts. I, re- I just think it's pointless. I think, honestly, if you just made extra innings the exact same as they were normally, there would be zero like it would have it's not like we would have had eight 18 inning games i don't know what they're freaking out about um, like barely that doesn't even happen and when it, it happens, happens like it's three on times a year classic, and it's sweet and we watched the braves brewers i think it was in like yeah. the 80s play 16 inning game, whatever yeah. it was um but so that that annoys me but i i have enjoyed watching baseball be back a quick mike yastrzemski for the giants is a stud he's playing yeah. so well um Very, like a lot of clutch home runs against my padres this weekend yeah he's i mean he was um hitting something like it's crazy because he's 550 years old opening up yeah he's been around like even though he has the huge last name obviously with Carl Yastrzemski but he's worked his way I really like him um other thing is I'm just so pissed the Giants for not re-signing Kevin Pillar because he's just fucking <laughs> killing it for the Red Sox of course the Red Sox aren't even very good Aaron Judge is on a fucking tear I think he's got five in a row he's, he's got in six and five games or something yeah. um yeah, who cares? It's fucking Yankees. Fuck them. Um, you had a couple points, though, and I, I wanted to hear what you had to say. So the first thing I wanted to know your thoughts as a National League fan, I think the easiest transition out of all these rules, and I haven't thought twice about it, is probably because I hate the, like, the extra inning rule so much, is the universal DH. I haven't even, like, I forgot pitchers used to hit already. What do you think? I haven't, like, it hasn't, like, like I, I haven't, it hasn't been jarring. I agree. Um, I'm someone, so... I was talking about this a little earlier. I I like the strategy that is involved with the having a pitcher and like doing that sort of stuff. But I also see the benefits of having a DH. That's kind of why I'm like it's perfect. We have the AL who doesn't have it and the NL who do, does. And so when we have interleague play, it's fucking awesome. But um, yeah, it I haven't, it hasn't bothered me at all. This it's fine, and especially in a shortened season where everything's so weird, like why not try it out? But I'm not going to lie. I would be kind of bummed if they were like, okay, we're going to keep this moving forward. That was the last you've ever seen a pitcher bat because there is, is even though home runs are cooler and it's easier yeah, to get cooler. big hitters in the AL <laughs> because the best versus the best, but it is, there's still that little part of me that it's really cool. Baseball, those little mental mind games you play, but I totally see your point. Um, I, I, that's, I, I just like I it the, the way it is. Don't is you, like, do you agree? It's nice ALNL. Like, I like the ALNL, but I do like... You just wish the Padres the, could get some more big hitters. That. <laughs> and I think it's great now that they can explore in free agents and get that big hitter next time. You know. Yeah. So we'll see. Do you think, um, gun to your head, do you think that they're going to probably keep it? or? I think they're going to keep it. 
Okay. I think they're gonna keep I, I that. I think they're right. gonna keep the tenth inning thing. I hope the tenth inning thing. Please God. They're gonna keep it because I think there's enough people that won't put the remote because it's like, oh, it's the tenth inning. Now we'll start watching the game because someone's always. But on. then are they gonna realize it's like, well, okay, you realize that guy's gonna score and then three dudes will strike out and then the next inning, it's gonna. I mean, it's just so fucking manufactured. The like the thing I kind of propose is like, if, hopefully, if they adopt that rule, that they just keep like the 10th 11th and 12th normal and then it's like okay if it's the 13th, 13th running, or 14th then in, first go for it and i understand why it has to be second base but that's my little spiel i like that you were you were talking about so shohei Atani. yeah so he's out four to six weeks and it's really annoying because he's like he a, got lit the fuck up yeah the last because he didn't even get an out his first start hasn't didn't pitch last year so it's been like it's been two years now and hitting wise how's he doing hitting he's fine like the two years he's done it he's a but stud hitter I don't He's out four to six weeks, so he'll probably because he played with or hit with Tommy John. So is he overhyped? I don't think he's overhyped. Like he has a stuff. It's just like he hasn't been in a game in two and a half years, and then spring training gets canceled. So yeah. I need that. But he just still reminds me of like you. Do, I don't think he's that mm-hmm. good. Speaking of someone he's who likes to, to take off time, uh, Cespedes. Oh um, so I don't... let's let's I'll, let me break this down just for the okay. listeners what happens. So. Cespedes has had some um, obviously great. Jonas Cespedes, great player, took led, was the best player on the Mets, I, I believe, when they went to the World Series that year. He was a stud. He was a stud on the A's before. He's always had a little, I would say, just like kind of questionable off the field stuff that's kind of always happened. And um, so this past Sunday, I wake up and it's like the Mets don't know where Jonas Cespedes is. He's not answering his phone and blah blah blah. And so all of a sudden, everyone's like freaking out, like. Don't make jokes about this. He might might have passed away. Like he might be dead. And I was like, "What the like? What the fuck's going on?" It's kind and, of what I thought initially. Because it's weird. I mean, because like, he's been there's been weird weird, like weird shit like that's happened before. And then it comes out that apparently like his entire like locker and area completely empty, completely cleaned out. And then two or three hours later, like as all this speculation is going around. It, his agent just says, "Oh yeah, he was concerned about COVID and, and opted that's out for the season." Not true at all, because you played the first seven or eight games of baseball, and you were, I think he was. Yeah, slumping. I mean, it's just such a fuck you to your teammates and, it's like and he's your played fans. Thirty or forty games in the past two years, right when he got his big contract. Dude, he's and, gotten two big contracts for that yeah. World Series run, and yeah, and he's not like he didn't produce any like he's played like forty games the past two years. Yeah, I mean, the idea of him is still cool, but yeah, he's just not the same player he used to be. No, I completely agree. Uh, let's. Uh, I don't know if we do. We talk about Joe Kelly. Uh, that was just, I like. It was just awesome. I enjoyed it. I don't I like, like the Dodgers because it's like I don't like the Dodgers, but I'm glad someone did it. It's kind of funny because he was on the Red Sox at the time, and I get it. They played the Astros, but he wasn't like the Dodger to do it. He kinda, wasn't the I first Dodger to make the move. Troll. But I appreciate that, and I don't understand how Rob Manfred. He suspends a an Dodger infinite amount of games before. more than any Astro. <laughs> exactly. I was. I was. It, I'm, it just I'm, blows me away. I'm bad it's... at math, so I was like talking to my dad yesterday. I'm like, so eight games like for percent or something. No, so I was like, no, the, yeah, that's right. But I was like saying, I was like, so Joe Kelly got suspended for eight games, and the Astros got suspended for zero. So I was like, I was like, is that like eight hundred percent more, eight thousand percent more? <laughs> and he just like looks at me, and goes, it's infinite. Genius. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's why I do a podcast. Um, uh, anything Rob other? Uh, so next week in baseball, well, we got the the Phillies are back playing. That's good. The Marlins, I mean, just get the then fuck out today, of here. Today the Cardinals had so six players, seven staff members. So they're like postponed for a couple. Okay. So what I think might happen, I 
I actually I think the season's just gonna go. I think he's like Manfred's stubborn enough to just keep saying well, this. Did you see what he said like the two or three days ago? He, he, he blamed said, the players. I don't know. He basically just said like if we don't like follow protocol better, we're gonna cancel the season. Then the next day, he basically says like, oh, the season's gonna go on because I'm not a quitter. Something yeah. like that. I'm what I think is gonna end up happening. But make up your mind, Rob Manfred. What? Well, here's what I think can happen: <laughs> is there's this stuff's just gonna keep kind of randomly happen, especially because they're not like all quarantined and like yeah. a, you know. And it's just, and a lot of the p- players too are like non-symptomatic, so it's not like they they can like really tell. This is stuff's going to keep happening, and I really think maybe one or two or three or five teams finishes a sixty-game season, but a lot of teams might have to take a week or two off and weird or week plays off. You just got to push this, right? It's, no, what, what I think they're going to do though is I think when it hits, once each team has played forty games, they'll probably rush it and do it by win percentage. So you think they'll like end it by the third week, second week of September, and then just go straight into the playoffs and try to get it over with? I think they're just trying to get their money out of the season and get the fuck away from it. Do you think they'll afford two weeks of fast forward in baseball, even though they would get their playoff money? You know what I mean? It's either way, because I still, I mean, it's only 60 games, but that's a lot asking right now, I guess. I know, it's just... Baseball is so fucking stupid. It's just built for this. Baseball should have started yeah, I mean, July how, like, first. It's so easy to happen because it takes a couple people. Because yeah. the Cardinals, it takes a couple people to go to the casino. Yeah, night. it's just human nature. Then, it's just, it's just fucked. I just, it's, I don't know. Just this anything. is a message before. Last thing. This is just to the gods, from Big Dog and me. Don't fuck with football. Let's just make sure we're getting all the test runs with MLB, NBA. Let's figure it out. And then, because you saw the Pac-12, like their news, like I, they, it looks like they're not going to play football this year, most likely. Fucking damn it. So we're just hoping for the SEC and the NFL at this point. I, I think we'll probably we'll, we'll probably get the Big Twelve. Well, probably, but you know, I mean, as, let's get some action too. I need some <laughs> Tuesday need night some, action. Need Monday through Sunday. Exactly. Uh, well, big dog. Um, a good little MLB check-in. Again, we're going to do a little longer one of this next week. Uh, we're about to talk to our resident history fan, historian, history fan, Jeff Robbins, my father. Uh, we're going to talk about two naval battles today. We're going to talk about the Battle of Actium and the Battle of Trafalgar. It's actually very entertaining. You're not going to want to miss it. We will be right back. Thank you, Big Dog. I'll see you on the other side of this break. I'll see you soon. All right, we're back on the pineapple couch, and we're going to be talking some naval history. So to preface that, we're going to be looking at naval history as a whole, I think maybe over the course of the next couple weeks, because I think there's a lot of stuff. We might do other battles. But today we're going to highlight three naval battles that were really from each different era of naval combat. And so to help us with that, it's me and Andrew, and we got our resident historian, my father, Jeff Robbins. Jeff, how you doing? I am well. I'm not a historian. I'm just a history fan. Okay, there we go. Um, so why don't you explain um, what the first thing you want to talk talk to us and explain to the listeners what we're going to do here. <clears throat> well, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three battles, naval battles, in history, each from a different historical era, each of which involved completely different tactics that they used at the time and 
um, what happened in those battles, why they were significant, and what sort of the historical aftermath of each one of those battles were. And the three we're going to look at are the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. We are going to look at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 and the Battle of Midway in 1942. Okay. Andrew, that, was, um, that sounds good, right? I'm excited. All right. So let's see. We're going to start with Actium. And that, yes, sir. And that was in 35 BC? 31. 31 BC. All right. Let's set the stage for that. Okay. So at the time, this was the Roman Civil War in the aftermath of the assassination of Julius Caesar. Okay. And the Roman Empire was split into three, but for our purposes, two. And that was between the Western Roman Empire run by uh, Julius Caesar's adopted heir, Gaius Octavian. And in the eastern part of the empire, one of the significant uh, generals who fought on behalf of the pro-Caesar faction in the aftermath of his assassination, a name everyone knows, and that's Mark Antony. Those were the two and, factions that came into conflict at the Battle of Actium. And who is uh, Octavius known as? He is Caesar Augustus. Augustus, the first yes. emperor. We'll get to how that all happened and what the historical aftermath was. But what you need to keep in mind is that the Roman civilization was in flux at this point between the traditional Roman Republic, which kind of shattered in the Roman Civil War where Caesar declared himself emperor, and the second phase of the Roman civilization, which was the Roman Empire. Okay. So we're at the transition between those two phases. Mm -hmm. And so um, basic question here is what is the relationship of Mark Anthony and um, Augustus at like at the start of this? Like what is the political landscape of this area right now? Like who's like who's in charge of? Uh, well, they Rome? made he's not Augustus yet. He's okay. Octavian and Augustus is a title as opposed to a name. Oh, really? It it's really means august, you know, like distinguished or, you know, the, the word august. It also is where we get the month of August is from Caesar Augustus. So um, the Roman Empire in the East was being led by Mark Antony, and in the East you also had the valuable Roman province of Egypt, which was run by Cleopatra. And Cleopatra and Mark Antony had a relationship, you know, that was of Shakespearean quality, mm -hmm. Antony and Cleopatra. And the Western Roman Empire was being run by Octavian, who really did not have the military pedigree of Mark Antony and really claimed his power through the fact that Caesar, Julius Caesar, had adopted him as his heir before his death. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to point out that, um, so when you think about Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, Andrew, you think of that as like a love story, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't, from what we were looking at, I don't know if that's actually that accurate. Maybe it appears that that may have been more of a political move than Romeo and Juliet, right? There were certainly both political and romantic elements to the relationship with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Recall that Caesar had a relationship with Cleopatra as well. Um, she was, she's 
one of the most famous women in history, very exotic. But from Octavian's standpoint, the Roman core located in modern-day Italy had serious misgivings about the East and its decadence and luxury and softness, for lack of a better word. And Octavian used Mark Antony's relationship with Cleopatra as a sword in the Roman Republic, uh, not the Roman Republic so much as the core of, of Roman power. Like the Senate to, of some yeah, sort? Yeah, to demonstrate that he'd, he'd gone Eastern. You know, he'd kind of left the traditional Roman workmanlike. And legion. so these are like two kind of like totally different worlds is how uh, Octavian's describing it. Like he went like, so just because I want to point this out as the Roman empire becomes so big, what you're saying is that the Western part of Rome was beginning to like, maybe not recognize the Eastern part of Rome as, as Roman. Is that what you're saying? No, it was just different. You have to keep in mind that the older, more established area was the East. I mean, Babylon, mm-hmm. you know, is modern day Israel, Egypt, ancient, ancient civilizations. Mm-hmm. Whereas Spain, France, Britain at the time were, were kind of barbarians. So it wasn't so much like East versus West as it was a division of power between Octavian and Antony, where they allotted themselves territorial control. And Antony took the East probably because it was much more valuable than the West in many ways. Like trade? Trade, people, uh, the existence of long-term civilization. Mm -hmm. So you had merchants and, you know, Spain and the Gauls were savages that, Mm -hmm. that it was like the Western frontier in the United States kind of. And so, um, you've set the scene well of like the two players in this, but at the beginning of this story, they're not at odds. Well, they kind of know eventually maybe one day, but they are working together. And, um, it's true that, uh, so Octavian's sister was sent to Mark Anthony to be his bride, correct? Yes. So Octavian and, and Mark Anthony teamed up after Caesar got assassinated and fought the faction of the Senate that had assassinated Caesar. And wiped him out? At the Battle of Philippi, located in Macedonia, Antony and Octavian's armies defeated the, pro, the, the, the faction that had supported the assassination of Caesar. In the aftermath of that battle, they divided the Roman Empire between them. There was another guy, Lepidus, I think, who got North Africa, but it's not as relevant for the purposes of our story. Okay, and so where does the the strain in this relationship begin? When, because we're just describing right now as they... they, avenged Caesar's death and split Rome between them. They're two essential kings now, not kings, but rulers. Um, where does their relationship begin fracturing apart? What causes that? Let's like, let's start painting. It's how- kind of a Game of Thrones thing, right? It's about power. The Roman Empire was not, even though it had been divided between the two of them, it was one place mm-hmm. for you know, traditionally. Westeros. So it wasn't when Julius Caesar, for example, or any of the preceding leaders of the Roman Republic were in charge, there was no East and West. It was one Mm -hmm. thing. So that was just kind of naturally going to go against each other. They were going to fight. Yeah. 
And um, so what happened was he, uh, Mark Antony marched his, formed his army and marched it through Turkey, modern day Turkey over to Greece and had his naval force there and was getting ready to try to launch essentially an assault on Italy to fight Octavian and seize control of the Roman Empire. Is Octavian aware of this? You know, I'm sure he was. To what degree, I don't know, but it wasn't... You can't really move the size of the force Mark Antony was moving without everyone knowing. And at this point, is he united with Cleopatra? Yes, and Cleopatra has is with him and has a contingent of Egyptian military. I mean, it's not really Egyptian, it's all Roman, but and a bunch of ships from Egypt. And they had had about 170 warships. And for our purpose of naval history, in terms of eras, these are the eras where ships were man powered with oars. So you had the galleys down below and the holes in the side of the ships. And you had the teams of slaves that would, row the ships and that wasn't just for traveling from here to there i mean they did have rudimentary sails but um the 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 weapon element of the naval force was as a ramming ship so they would have a bunch of assassin's creed odyssey they'd have a bunch of (laughs) marines basically on the boat or ship and the front of the ship would have a battering ram on it And the idea was to have your slaves build up enough speed to launch yourself into the side of the other boat, smashing into it, and your Marines then jump onto the other boat and fight the other people on the boat. And it was essentially a land battle on the water. That's what the Romans wanted because they were a legionary force. They, they weren't a traditional naval power. So they basically tried, you know, they were a brute force type th- thing. But what you have to keep in mind is Mark Antony was essentially the same. They were both Romans whose military backgrounds were in the legions and their weapons, tactics, and those sorts of things were essentially the same. So what happens is uh, Mark Antony brings his force up to the coast of Greece and tries to launch an assault on Italy, but it, it he finds Octavian is blockading it and can't go. So he goes back into this harbor where Actium, which is where the name of the battle comes from, uh, is located. And while he's in this harbor, Octavian sends a force of about 260 ships over and blockades Mark Antony in the harbor. And there's a standoff that develops for a very long period of time, I believe years. And I think so. It might have been less than that, but it was a long time. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, Mark Antony's army starts to abandon him and get sick and have issues that kind of make him in a position where he has to decide to either flee a retreat back to the Eastern Roman Empire or attack and he attacks so he and that's the fuck up he was in a very difficult position because retreat would have had its own consequences in terms of desertions and other you know other prominent figures abandoning his side. So it wasn't like retreat would have been this 
like safety, safe, yeah. perfect thing that would not have had consequences for him. He, he was in a tough spot and that's why he sent out his fleet. And so when they came out of the Harbor, they realized they were drastically outnumbered by, uh, Octavian's fleet and formed themselves in a line and basically dared Octavian to come and attack him. Octavian, um, did not take the bait and eventually Mark Antony sailed out to meet him and he went out on the right side first and was defeated soundly and then went out on the left side and had a little bit more success but not much and then his center portion of the fleet charged into the Roman center and successfully broke through and had they turned and attacked the rear of the Roman fleet at that time there's a chance that the battle could have gone a different way but Mark Antony fled and Cleopatra came out with him at the same time and their ships that got through did not turn around and help the other ones. They went to open seas and fled and the remaining army surrendered to Octavian After a bunch were fucking killed. or were killed. And I think something like 30 or 40,000 men died in the battle of Actium. I mean, they had... 200 ships with a few hundred people on each of them. It was brutal. And so he just abandoned his... Yeah. And then, and then he killed himself. And so did Cleopatra. Fucking pussy. So the historical significance of the Battle of Mark Actium... Mark Anthony is a loser. Yeah, Mark Anthony ended... He's a loser. He's, he's a loser. He, he is a big, fat loser <laughs> that got half of Greece because he was... Half in, of Rome. Half of Rome. Because he was competent around Julius Caesar and Augustus, Octavian, literally, it was child's play to him comparing well, with this guy. This guy was up. running around trying to fall in love, just fucking up. He abandons. Of course he lost. Who would want to follow a man like that? Well, fucking. ironically, there was another battle earlier called the Battle of Messina that was very controversial because Octavian was soundly defeated and actually ran and hid. And it became a big story about how Octavian had run and hid. And the guy who really defeated the pro-assassination faction in that first battle was Mark Antony. Yeah, he was more experienced. He had an, his history as a military leader up to that point was way better than mm -hmm. Octavian. But one thing we learn is that history is told by the victors. And there is no month named Anthony. There is one <laughs> named August. August. So and, what happened yeah. afterwards was the Mark Antony, the, the Roman Empire was reunited and Gaius Octavian was declared Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And that cemented the transition from the traditional Roman Democratic Republic to an empire that ultimately collapsed uh, four and a half centuries later and that is the battle of actium i like that um before i have i have a few questions and i think andrew might have something just random um because that's basically what what andrew and i were the common men responding to these and um i've never heard of this story it's a, it's a fucking <laughs> it's badass a story. story um what i was thinking though is because i actually i want to do one more today i want to do um the Battle of Trafalgar, and the reason I want to save the Battle of Midway is because I think it wouldn't be 
fair to our listeners for us to talk about the Battle of Midway without me seeing the film and giving our listeners an opportunity to see the film. So you got some homework for the next week. Next Monday, or maybe, yeah, we'll put it out Monday. We might record it before. We are going to be talking about the Battle of Midway and the movie. Does that sound good, Dad? Dick Best. The story of Dick Best. <laughs> we'll get all into that next time. That's a nice teaser for next episode. Um, and so next is the Battle of Trafalgar, correct? Yes. After the break. All right, we're back here on the Pineapple Couch. We got our resident history fan. There you go. Jeff Robbins, and we got Big Doug. Big Doug, how you doing? Doing great. All right, so we're going to be talking about the Battle of Trafalgar next, and I'm going to set the scene for you, and I'll let you take it away, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> or dad, father, Jeffrey, um, <laughs> resident history fan. So we got Napoleon right now. We're, it's about 18, 1803, I believe, and Napoleon's on a fucking rampage throughout Europe right now. He's everywhere in Europe's a fucking kingdom, and all of a sudden, France is a republic. They have the French Revolution. They're chopping people's heads off, and all of a sudden, they have massive armies that are mowing down everyone in their way, and we know what Napoleon wants to do. Napoleon wants to cross the... English Channel. English Channel, thank you, big dog, to go take over England. And all the people in the UK are like, fuck. It's scary, because this dude's on a rampage, and... This is where you come in, resident history fan Jeff Robbins. <clears throat> it's interesting because as you bring that up, the, the same mistakes that Napoleon made that we'll talk about today were repeated by Hitler. Yeah. In terms of Napoleon's desire to cross the English Channel and failure to take out Britain and his subsequent turning on Russia which ends in disaster in both cases and two front wars where they have to fight on both sides and it's just a mess. But that's kind of a bigger picture. The Battle of Trafalgar is, along our theme today, was one of the most, if not the most significant battle of the naval age of sail. So these are huge ships that are have tons of cannons on both sides of them that they will load with what's called grape shot which turns these cannons into giant shotguns that they use to get up close to the enemy and basically shoot shotguns at each other at point blank range it's insane what they do so at the time the only thing preventing british uh the preventing Napoleon from crushing Britain is the 26 mile wide English Channel and the British naval supremacy. So Napoleon's whole thing is to take out the British naval force in the English Channel to allow the army to cross without being sunk by the British Navy. And then if, if Napoleon were to cross, it's over, correct? It's certainly over in the sense that all of Western Europe would largely have fallen to Napoleon and his allies. Well, not really his allies, because Napoleon was a, a kingdom of one. But what Napoleon had done in, for example, Italy, was install his brother as king. He did the same thing in, I think, Austria and other areas of Europe, where 
ironically, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, which was this democratic revolution, you had a guy, Napoleon, a short little Corsican, who basically declared himself royal and started installing his family members as royalty all over Europe. But it really freaked out the traditional monarchies of Europe, which were largely interrelated and all knew each other. And this is like their worst nightmare. So, um, what Napoleon. I have a question. So, we're going to be setting up the Battle of Trafalgar. And why is this battle significant? Obviously, it's significant because of Napoleon. But the other reason this is so significant is because Napoleon's aid or country that is working with him at the time and I wouldn't necessarily ally because Napoleon's Napoleon but he had the Spanish Armada at his disposal correct that's correct what happened was in the lead up to Trafalgar the British had a naval encounter with a few Spanish ships and sunk a few of them causing Spain to join Napoleon and essentially plan to cooperate with him in the invasion of Britain. And the the Spanish England, Armada the at the time, isn't it the most feared and most powerful naval fleet, correct? Traditionally, yes. Because, I mean, you have to remember, Spain is the country that colonized the New World. They had kind of led the way in the age of exploration in many ways. You know, the Philippines is Spanish. Um, the Almost all of South America is Spanish, and what's not is Portuguese. So those were the traditional naval powers, but whether or not they were the british were were largely perceived as the dominant naval force at the time you had already had the spanish armada defeated by the era of guys like you know sir francis drake and the age of piracy and that sort of thing so at this time spain was kind of an empty husk they were significant but they had a lot of problems yeah okay so during this time, too, it's it's important that you mention the New World. There are some escapades kind of going on with the the British and the um, Napoleon chasing each other to the Caribbean. Do you want to go into that? Okay, so by way of quick background, this conflict is actually called the, the War of the Third Coalition. And the coalition are the group of countries that allied allied together against Napoleon. And... It included Russia, I think, and a few other countries in in Eastern Europe. Europe that had not already been conquered by Napoleon, who were the remaining monarchies of Europe who were still trying to hold back the Napoleonic tide. Um, so Britain actually declared war on France in this particular war. And the benefit of that was that at the time that Britain declared war, the French fleet was scattered. Some of it was in the, uh, uh, the Atlantic coast of France, some of it was in the Mediterranean, some of it was at sea. And you, you, there was a major strategic advantage to bringing as many ships to bear as you could at once. So being scattered was a problem. Mm-hmm. And so what Napoleon's plan was, was to take the French fleet and consolidate it in the Atlantic Ocean by having his portion of the fleet in the Mediterranean cross through the Straits of Gibraltar into the Atlantic, his fleet on the Atlantic coast of France to break out of the blockade and unite with the portion of the French fleet that was already out there. And the the Mediterranean fleet was successful in breaking out, 
and the fleet at the Atlantic coast of France in a town called Brest was not. And so the portions of the French fleet that were already at sea and the portion that broke out from the Mediterranean headed west into the Caribbean and attacked several French uh, British colonies. And when Nelson, the leader of the British fleet, got word of it, he chased them out into the Atlantic, you know, across the Atlantic. And this was what Napoleon's plan was. It was to bring the French, the British Navy away from the English Channel and then race back to Europe when the British fleet was scattered and attack the English Channel well, in weak. order to provide security for his army to cross the English Channel and invade Britain. So Nelson is unsuccessful in capturing the, the French fleet in the Caribbean, and the French fleet successfully escapes back across the Atlantic. And this is a very significant time because they have the numbers. Uh, Nelson is behind him, and they're headed straight toward Western Europe. And there's an encounter at Cape, Cape Finistra or something like yeah. that, and where um, there's an encounter between the returning French fleet and a portion of the British Navy that is still there. And mm -hmm. I think this this particular small component of the conflict is very significant because they they essentially stop the returning French fleet from crashing through the western coast of Europe, liberating the portion of the French fleet stuck in the town of Brest and taking that united French fleet into the English Channel. And because he, they get thwarted at this relatively minor conflict at Finisterre or whatever it is, they don't do that. Butterfly and the French effect. returning French fleet goes down near the Straits of Gibraltar to the town of Cadiz, where it anchors. They were able to do this because you're explaining like the T formation, right? Well, that's coming up. Okay. But we haven't gotten to that's that's in the actual Battle of Trafalgar. Okay. Um, but it's a good topic to bring up because what you need to understand why Trafalgar is very significant is the traditional tactics of the day were to form one single line of your ships and to try to bring the broadsides, not the front or back, but the broadsides of your ships all at once on the other fleet when it was coming straight at you. So like a T almost. And the top of the T, that if you're in that position, all of the sides of your ship are pointing at the front ship on the other side ships, yeah. and they can't shoot at you so that is like the ultimate position to be in strategically at the time according to the traditional tactics of the day okay but anyway back to the story so the french uh fleet having lost this conflict at finisterre or whatever it's called goes down to the major spanish seaport of cadiz near the straits of gibraltar and Admiral Villeneuve is waiting down there. And this is the weirdest part of the story to me. He gets ordered like twice not to do shit. Like Napoleon sends him an order. It's like, don't go out and fight and wait for your replacement. And the guy just ignores it. I don't, I've, I've never really understood that. And he goes out with 
1805, in September, after this chase back and forth across the Atlantic. This is off the coast of southern Spain? Yep, at Cape Trafalgar, which is where the battle gets its name. And it's sailing out to consolidate its fleet and do whatever its operation. It didn't know where the British Navy was. So they were heading out uh, to the west. Against Napoleon's orders. Well, yeah. Yeah, Napoleon okay. I, told I'm just, him, yeah, I'm just clarifying. I mean, Napoleon wasn't against confronting the British Navy per se, but he had ordered this particular admiral, don't do shit and wait for your replacement. So Napoleon knew he was a dumbass. I don't know what the reason is behind it, but ultimately, yeah, he's a dumbass if you look at the outcome. <laughs> so he goes out and, and he has his ships because he's not expecting the British Navy, not in a single line, but in two lines uh, side by side, but still... Not in a terrible position. And here comes Nelson and the British Navy. And they're coming up at him the way the bottom of the T would come. So you'd think the Spanish are in a good position. To just fire because the fucking British can't. Right. And they're about five kilometers apart. Why didn't they put guns on the front of the ship? Well, they could, but they just don't have enough space. You can can only put so many guns in the front if the front of the ship is not that wide. I mean, just eighteen oh five. Put a bear fifty cow on. The I'm top. sure. <laughs> I believe some of them. You know, they may have a gun or two. Yeah, but front, not to the level of the not twenty. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and um, so Nelson, this is completely rewrites the book on tactics in this confrontation. He's in the weak position. He's the 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 coming at the top line of right. the T. He has the low ground, but he breaks himself into two groups. And the reason he does this is because he believes, and he's correct, that the British Navy's, the training of the average British naval seaman and the quality of the British troops <laughs> is such <laughs> that they will win in a, in a flat-out confrontation. If you can bring those two elements to bear, the quality of the ship and the quality of the sailor, the British, Nelson says he's going to win. He's outnumbered. He has more, there's more ships and bigger ships in the Spanish and French fleets. And Nelson, he's in two squadrons, and the bottom one, led by a guy named Collingwood, who's the guy that beat the Spanish at that Finisterre thing and kind of gets not enough credit, in my opinion, he barrels into the Spanish fleet. And the Spanish fleet, as it sees, is surprised by the British Navy. Unbelievably, they try to turn around and go back to harbor, completely destroying the advantage they had at being the top line of the T. And this allows Nelson's ships it's to like get... an all-time fuck-up. Yeah, all-time fuck-up. And um, Nelson, this allows Collingswood, part of Nelson's fleet, to get in amongst the first line of Spanish ships where the quality of the British ships and the quality of the British sailors comes to bear, and they blow shotguns, cannon-sized shotguns at each other from point-blank range, sending giant sharp pieces of wood flying across the ship that just cuts people's throats and slits it's bad i can't even imagine just imagine that having 25 fighting in this era we were talking about this before we were recording this and like this and swords it's like just fuck just hit me with a nuke they talk about in this era if you read the books about how the ships would become slick with blood there was so much blood on the surface of the ships that the sailors who were still fighting smelled like shit too i I can't even imagine what it looked like Oh, but God. so 
Collingswood gets in amongst him and just starts blowing the shit out of the first Spanish line. I mean, he's taking damage too. Don't get me wrong, but they are able to isolate this one area of the first line of the Spanish fleet on one side of it. And it, basically cuts the bottom third of the Spanish line off. And because of the superiority of the British sailor and ships, they, they force a number of the Spanish ships to either get crushed or surrender. And at this, at this time, North where Nelson is, he now goes in amongst the T the top line of the T and it's amazing because he's the admiral, he's the lead guy, and he's the first, his ship's the first one that just goes in there and starts blowing these shotguns off at point blank range at the Spanish ships. And they have snipers on these ships. So not only do wait, you wait, have. Explain, what's a, a, a sniper in 1805? A guy, you know how they have masts on the ships uh-huh. and crow's nests and that yeah, sort of yeah. thing? They'd have guys up in the tops of those ships with rifles. They're not far away from the other ships yeah, yeah. when they're in these fights. Like and they're 50. sniping people. They're looking for officers, and they're trying to shoot them in the head during the fight, basically, is Savage. what they're doing. Yeah. And then they actually try to – Nelson you know, trades fire with these ships, and because his ship is the first in there, he's taking a beating. They actually try to board the HMS victory. And he gets fucked up, right? Nelson? He gets shot with a sniper right when this is happening. And it's obvious that the wound is fatal. I forgot one thing that I need to, oh, yeah. the yeah. famous quote from this battle is right when they're about to go into battle, Nelson issues an order, which is if you're British, you learn this as a school child. And this is a big deal it is England expects that every man will do his duty. And that's, on the statue of Nelson in Trafalgar Square in London to this day. And that's where it comes from. So after Nelson gets in there, the rest of his ships come in amongst the the French and Spanish Navy. Again, the same result, point bank firing. The British ships and sailors are superior, defeat them. And then there's still the second line of the Spanish French Navy that really hasn't been brought into the conflict, especially at the northernmost point of the line. And there's an order issued for them to wrap the French Spanish to wrap around the back and come at the portion of Nelson's fleet from behind. Um, which if you look at it on a, like on a, when they do the aerial maps and show the sequence of battle, you can see why they thought that was available to them. But they just weren't good enough. The orders didn't get passed properly. Only some of the ships got the orders. Villeneuve, you know, realized this, he lost. And he salvaged whatever portions of the fleet that remained and fled back to the harbor of Cadiz. What happened to that guy? Villeneuve? I don't know what happened to him afterwards. I'm sure I could find out. I don't, it seems like he would. Probably get killed, right? (laughs) Napoleon didn't do that stuff. I mean, Napoleon was... For all the, the, you know, descriptions of him as the Antichrist and all these things, you got to remember the people looking at Napoleon that way are coming from that monarchy standpoint. And if you look at the curve of history, who won? Napoleon, Napoleon or the monarchs? Napoleon. There's no monarchs left that have any power. So, yeah, Napoleon was on the, the trend of history was certainly with Napoleon in that sense. 
only though if you ignore all the parts about napoleon you know like installing crowning himself you know he went crazy yeah but he was a he's what he was everyone a, does with power well no not everyone hmm. not everyone that's not true george washington marcus didn't. aurelius didn't do it <laughs> it's, it's it Mar- george washington but I'm just saying human nature is to take that power. Certainly it's more common for power to go to people's yeah. heads. Wait, so let's talk about like the impact of like, so obviously what Napoleon after this. Two, two things. For, it wasn't the end of Napoleon. No, I know. The end of Napoleon didn't come till 1814. I mean, at Waterloo, I think it was 1814 or 15. So he had another 10 years to run. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended the the prospect of an invasion of Britain. He, like we were talking about earlier, he couldn't take down Britain, same way Hitler couldn't in 1940, and turned on Russia with <laughs> disastrous. That should be another episode we talk just about. Is why Napoleon. would you ever march to Russia? Not just why, but the particulars of what happened on the, the similarities are crazy. To, it's not so much the the. There's horror stories in both. Yeah, but the. They're both incredible stories, but the story of the Napoleonic retreat from Moscow is unbelievable. Well. But anyway, it's the other outcome of this particular conflict was the undeniable supremacy of the British Navy. And so from that point, really up to World War II, when the Americans built their naval capacity out in that the British were in charge of the sea. Um and it was kind of the final flash of the age of sail because, you know, by the civil war, they were developing coal powered ironside ships. So this and was, obviously aircraft carriers came out. Uh, this came later where you no longer had world war two was the first conflict where you had naval battles where the ships fighting never saw each other because it was all aerial. Mm hmm. Well, and we're still living in that era. Yeah, so I I very much enjoyed this. Um, I think um, I like doing this. I think it's a uh, it's really fucking cool to think about because um, what's the it's kings and generals? Is that the YouTube channel? Would yeah. you recommend? Yeah, it's good, especially if you like maps and the military component of history, mm-hmm. which is what I find most yeah, interesting. Definitely. Um, well, thank you so much, Dad. Thank you so much, Andrew. This has been an awesome episode of the pineapple couch. Thank you to Josh for coming on earlier. Um, we will be back next week with um, some, obviously some more NBA MLB cause sports are going and then remember the homework midway movie this week. We're going to be talking about it next Monday or Tuesday. It should be fun. Cause that's also, we'll have, we'll have more. It'll be a little longer cause we'll talk about the movie as well. And Dick best. Um, Dick Best. You'll hear all about him next week. This is the Pineapple Couch. I'm B Rob. Thank you so much for listening. Just really quickly. All right, here we go. Dick Best. And you're sitting. (laughs) No one knows who Dick Best is yet. You'll learn about him at the Battle of Midway, but you don't need to know him for this part. Imagine if you're there and they're calling roll, where they call last name first. Dick Best. It's like Best Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this has been the Pineapple Couch. We'll catch you guys next time. Thank <laughs> you.